Hey everybody, it's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here uh, at the summit. And as we uh, continue in the gospel according to Mark, um, before we jump into the text that we just read, I I want you to think about um, maybe your hobbies, your interests, like whatever it is you have the propensity to nerd out on. And I want you to think about like how surprisingly fractured that community of men and women who like all kind of have the same interests happen to be. And that probably doesn't make sense like instantly. So let me just give you an example from my own life. Um, I really wish I could give like this super cultured example, but like for me, when it boils down to it, like my biggest interest outside of Jesus is sports. Um, I love football, both the European and the American version. And uh, let's just go with American football. That's probably, that was what I was born and bred to love. And, uh, you know, you think that a group of men and women who love American football could kind of just be in agreement about loving American football. But if you've ever, like, known somebody who loves American football and get into a conversation with them, all of a sudden they're like, oh, no, you know, I favor college football over pro. Uh, but then it's not just college football. It's like, oh, I prefer uh, one conference over the other. I prefer the SEC's athletic prowess over that of the Big Ten or the, the pac 12 or whatever it is uh, now, and then you press it even further, it's like, oh, it's not just SEC football fans, it's like SEC West over SEC East, and I favor the Alabama schools over the Mississippi schools, and you just keep like going and pressing further and further and further uh, until like every single person has sort of carved out their own independent uh, niche of interests of like, I love this particular backup uh, weak side linebacker on the Alabama defense. Um, And I don't know what you're interested in, but it's probably like the exact same thing. Like, think about this. Like, for some of you, you're really into the Denver beer scene, but you're not into the Denver beer scene. You are into the craft beer scene. uh, And you don't, you know, just drink craft beers. I only drink IPAs. And you make a point of telling people that, like, whenever you go out uh, for drinks. Or, like, for some of you, you're like, you know, in Denver, there's huge diet scenes. Like, Paleo sort of started as like CrossFit only thing, and now it's spread. It's evil, uh, like gluten-hating tentacles everywhere, and um, and and so like there's varieties of it, right? Like some of you are just like, oh yeah, I just do Paleo, and some of you are like, no, I do Whole Thirty Paleo, and some of you are like, oh, I do Primal Paleo, and some of you you do the Paleo where you can like still eat donuts. I'm not sure how you work that out, but like you do, and it's like I'm eating Paleo. I'm like, that is a voodoo donut in your hand. That is not paleo, okay? I, we all know that. Uh, but whatever it is, like, think about whatever it is you're interested in. It's, it's sort of surprising, isn't it, that, like, a group of people, even though they have the exact same hobby or the exact same interests, you start to get around them, and they're like, oh, no, 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 like, it's far more fractured and far more independent than you could ever imagine. It, it's amazing how fractured uh, even a community of people who have similar interests are. Now, hold that kind of idea in your mind. Let me just ask you a question. What happens when tragedy strikes on a national or global scale. Here's what's, I mean, just think, for example, like when's the last time this happened a couple weeks ago with the shootings down in Charleston? And like, what happens? It's amazing, isn't it? All of a sudden, this like, these deeply fractured uh, interest groups, this deeply fractured culture, all of a sudden manifests within itself this almost unanimous response where everybody's saying the exact same thing. Isn't that interesting? Like, everybody's coming out and saying, like, it shouldn't be this way. We long for a day where it isn't this way. Like, we we desire for peace and healing for those who have experienced this tragedy. You have this universal response rising up from a culture that says nothing is universal anymore. Isn't that, like, really interesting? Now, here's where this goes from just kind of being interesting to, like, relevant to what it is that we're talking about for for this evening. Um, What we would say is the church— this is a community of men and women who follow Jesus. One, like, that universal, unanimous longing for the world to be healed 
is not merely that you have felt in the midst of tragedy, whether it's personally in your life or whether it's kind of like on a, on a national or global scale, that, that longing that you and I have all experienced, no matter what it is that we believe about God, is not some sort of fanciful uh, desire that just sort of has to be explained away. And we say to you, oh, well, you know, it's time to grow up and suck it up and the world is a, a cold, hard, hard, terrible place. No, like what we actually believe is the reason that that's a universal human longing is because of the God who is universal in nature has imputed that into our beings and it is a longing for the way the world used to be prior to sin and the way God intended the world to be. It is a glimpse of what the world will be when he steps back in and restores the world back to the way he created and intended it to be. So we would just say that. Like, one, we as the church, we don't kind of dismiss that as like, well, it's time for you to grow up and suck it up. No, we would say, like, you feel that for a reason. But here's the, the more important thing, is not only do we kind of affirm that longing within you, we can actually name that longing. What we would say, whether you recognize it or not, and kind of no matter what you might believe about Jesus, is that what you are desiring is the kingdom of God. What you're desiring, even if you've never read the Bible before, it's something that Jesus says in the Bible, in the Lord's Prayer, that God, thy kingdom would come, thy will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's amazing, and we kind of like all feel and are shaken a little bit about how broken the world actually is. There's this universal craving for the coming of the kingdom. Now, the reason all this matters for what we're about to study is Jesus is going to talk about our desire and our longing for the kingdom. And more specifically, he's going to answer the question of how does the kingdom come? So it's not just enough to say like, oh, like isn't this interesting sort of cultural observation that we all want this and desire this? Like really you need to think more logically about it and ask the question of like, well, how does it come? Like how does the kingdom of God that we universally long for break into my family, break into my marriage, break into my neighborhood, uh, break into my city, break into my workplace, break onto my campus, break into this country, break onto this world? Like, how does that happen? And if you ever desire, not just desired that, but kind of wonder, like, how does that happen? Here's the really great news, is that Jesus, in this final parable he's going to hit us with tonight, uh, he's actually going to say three specific ways the kingdom of God can break into our lives, both on a local and a global scale. It's really good news. I mean, this is something we've all wanted, um, and Jesus is going to speak specifically to that. And so that's what we're going to work our way through. We'll see Jesus talk about the kingdom breaking in in three specific ways. And uh, here's the first, okay? Let's look at the text, starting in verse 30. The first we see uh, is that the kingdom comes through the king. Jesus is going to say the kingdom comes through the king. And, and this seems a little bit obvious, and it seems kind of like, oh, yeah, we can just kind of assume that and move on. But it's really a significant point that Jesus is making that I think because it's so obvious, uh, it's kind of easy to, like, neglect. And so look with me at verses 30 through uh, 31. And he, being Jesus, said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? What pow- parable should we use for it? It's like, what is the kingdom like? How does it come? And he says, it is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Now, if you've been here for any period of time, um, you should be like, okay, Jesus, like enough with the seed analogies, okay? Like, do you have like no other material? Can you not think of any sort of other cultural illustration? Because like over and over again, he's referencing that that the kingdom comes like a seed. Now, what we said uh, about the seed, what's so significant about this, is it isn't just an interesting kind of cultural observation. Uh, for Jesus, he doesn't just teach about the seed. He is the seed. Uh, we said this a couple of weeks ago, but Jesus in John 12 says, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
And what we said is what Jesus is proclaiming repeatedly is the kingdom doesn't just come. The kingdom comes through the sowing of the seed. The kingdom comes through the life and the death and the resurrection of the king. Jesus, who is the seed, who we believe at the root uh, of his work, of his gospel, that he lives as we should have lived so that we might be righteous before God. He dies, much like a seed dies. He dies and is buried in the ground to be, so that we can be forgiven of our sins against God. And then he resurrects. He comes back up out of the ground three days later, victorious over the greatest enemies of humanity, of Satan, sin, death, and hell. And so Jesus, he repeatedly teaches, like, I'm not just teaching about seeds, like I am the seed that makes the coming of the kingdom possible. And so you can just imagine the people in the room, they're feeling the same thing we're feeling. Like, Jesus, enough of the seed analogies, mix up the material, I'm getting bored here. And the reason that Jesus repeats the same thing over and over and over again, that the kingdom comes through the sowing of the seed of the gospel, is not because he, like, can't think of anything else to say. No, like you and I, we have the propensity to overlook this very obvious point, and so he has to make it repeatedly. The kingdom of God comes through the coming of the king. There is no kingdom of God apart from King Jesus. Now, even still, at this point, probably most of us, most people in the room, uh, we would say collectively, well, like, duh, obviously, there's no kingdom apart from a king. But here's my observation is if you examine culture, uh, whether it's on a personal scale or sort of on a national scale, in the midst of tragedy, again, if we feel it individually or if we feel it sort of cosmically, it's amazing to me that there's almost this universal craving for the kingdom and the implications of the kingdom to spill into our lives in almost a universal rejection or at least a universal silence about the necessity of Jesus to step in and to reign and rule over that kingdom. And so just think about this. Like, probably in the next couple weeks, there will be another national or global tragedy, and everybody will have this universal response, and there will be some sort of diversity in it, right? Especially if you think about the political spectrum. Uh, On kind of the far right, you'll have people saying, well, like, this could just be solved if people would be more moral, and if people would be more law-abiding citizens, and they would just keep the rules. And sort of the far left, you have people saying, like, well, people were just more loving if they were more tolerant, if they were more educated, if they would just be nice. Like, I saw that bumper sticker when I went to the post office on Friday. And it was like, just be nice. Like, just be nice. And we wouldn't have these problems anymore. And we would, like, affirm all of those things, but we would say they are a desire for the implications of the kingdom apart from a desire for the coming of the king who makes this possible. Like, for us, it's not just enough to desire those things to happen. You have to logically ask the question of, like, how does that happen? Because if I'm honest about the condition of humanity, if I'm honest about even what goes on in my own heart, my natural inclination is not to, like, just be nice. And even, like, many of you in this room have tried to will yourself to, like, just be nice. Many of you have tried to will yourself to, like, not make asinine comments to your spouse that it ignites a sort of conflict that you've had over and over and over again. You even start the morning with, like, I'm not going to say something stupid. I'm not going to say something insensitive. And then all of a sudden, it's just like, boom, it just, like, comes out. You're like, no, 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 come back. It's right out there. And then, boom, you're like, it's escalated. So if you're honest about the condition of your own heart and humanity as a whole, you see that it's silly to talk about the implications of the kingdom like we can just will them to be through a little effort and elbow grease and education. 
And instead to say, like, we need a king to establish this kingdom. We need a king who is the ultimate example of what it looks like to live this way. And Jesus is the ultimate moral example of what it looks to live this way. But he even goes a step further because he is not just the king who is a moral example. He is the king who is a savior who dies. He takes our fallen nature upon himself. He resurrects from the grave. And the same spirit that resurrected Jesus from the grave is it alive in those who believe in him by grace through faith and he transforms and changes and enables us and empowers us to be the men and women we crave to be. And so it's just silly. Like this vague, Christless, cultural Christianity is impotent. And yet in the midst of every tragedy, people are using the language of it, expecting it to change something. There's no kingdom without the king. All right. Second, the kingdom comes underdoggedly, um, which I made that word up, but I have the microphone, so I get to do things like that. Um, I, I just, I could think of a better word. Like, I just love a good underdog story. And the way that Jesus teaches this is like the kingdom's advancement is the ultimate underdog story. Now we're going to look again at verses 30 through 31. And we're now going to, you know, we kind of saw it from 10,000 feet. Now let's dive right in. Look at verse 30. We'll look at it again. So Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Now, here's what we said, if you remember a couple of weeks ago. Jesus comparing the advancement of the kingdom, like the coming of a seed, is a deeply underwhelming analogy. Right? Like, it's, it's kind of uncool for Jesus to be like, the kingdom is like a seed. Like, we would be, like, much more enticed if he was like, the kingdom is like a nuclear missile, or like... The, the kingdom is like a revolver and the kickback is crazy on this thing and it's like so unbelievably powerful, but like the kingdom's like a seed. You know, like a lot of you have planted things before. You don't drop a seed and you're like, whoa, bombs away. You're like, okay, like I think it's in there. <laughs> you know, like I hope it's in there. I, I hope it's growing. I hope it's still alive. I don't know. Like years go by before you know anything's, anything's in there. But what we said is it's a really brilliant analogy because a seed is subtly powerful. You plant the gun under the ground 100 years later, there's still a gun. You plant the seed under the ground 100 years later, there's something exponentially greater than itself, and it possesses the power within itself to replicate its presence across the face of the earth. Now, what's interesting about verses 30 through 31 is Jesus actually takes the analogy a step further. He says, it's like a seed. Look at verse 31. When sown on the ground, is, it's like, he says, like a mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. So Jesus, he's like, the kingdom is not just like a seed. It's like the wimpiest seed you've ever seen. Like, it's the least impressive seed. It's the smallest seed. But everybody in the room would have known, like, what Jesus' point was. He wasn't saying, like, oh, yeah, like, lower your expectations. I have no power. He was saying, here's kind of the vehicle through which our, my power is demonstrated. A mustard seed was notoriously tiny. It was super, super, super small. But it had this power to, to multiply itself and grow to be, like, 10 to 14 feet tall. It was, like, almost miraculous how this small little thing would grow to be something so unbelievably huge. What Jesus is saying here is in our desire, in our universal craving for the coming of the kingdom to break into the spheres of influence you have been entrusted with, do not despise small beginnings. 
Do not feel like if you're not seeing something immediately happen, something is wrong. Do not feel like if you don't kind of walk into your workplace or walk onto your campus or you become a Christian and share your faith for the first time with your sibling and they're not all just like falling on their knees and weeping and, oh my gosh, like there's some water. Can we get baptized like right now? If that doesn't happen immediately, you shouldn't think something's wrong. Instead, that's actually more of the norm. And it's not because, like, Jesus isn't, but it's not like he doesn't have the power to do so. Like, this is just the means by which the kingdom typically advances. Uh, New Testament scholar R.T. France, he puts it this way, those who witness the initial proclamation of the kingdom of God must not despise small beginnings, nor should they be impatient for the full majesty of, God, of God's kingdom to be revealed. Now, here's where I feel like this is, like, practically really, really great news for you and me. And, and let me speak specifically. There's, there's you in this room. You know, I think all of you in this room, you desire for the kingdom to come. But some of you in this room, and I think a lot of you as well, uh, you not only desire for the kingdom to come, but you, like, actually work for the kingdom to come. Right? You feel like God has sent you to a campus. You feel like God has sent you to your family. You feel like God has sent you to your neighbors. God has sent you to your coworkers. God has sent you somewhere, and you desire for there to be a dramatic transformation in this sphere of influence that you have been entrusted with. Now, here's my observation of working with people who feel sent. It's not only do you feel sent, but a lot of you who, who kind of feel that way probably simultaneously feel tremendously discouraged as well. And you kind of impose upon yourself, like, because this is the way most things in culture kind of, like, grow, right? Like, most things in culture that are viewed as successes are, like, biggest box office release ever. Biggest book release ever. Most epic fail ever. Most epic successful thing ever. And you sort of absorb that expectation onto yourself and you go into your workplace fired up for Jesus, and you kind of see like what needs to happen. And your expectation, your unspoken expectation was like, I'm going to go in, and I'm going to kind of like cleverly transform the conversation when everybody's talking about how like drunk they got this weekend. I'm going to be like, oh, I went to church. And they're going to be like, church, tell me about that. And you'll tell them about that. And everybody's weeping, and everybody's repenting, and everybody's here the next Sunday. And instead, like you bring it up, and somebody just sort of changes the conversation as quickly as possible because religion is an awkward thing to talk about. And the boss you thought was going to be like getting baptized this Sunday instead is like a really terrible person still. Or a lot of you feel this with your family. I think we feel this with our biological families the most, where particularly like for those of you who became Christians later in life, which is a lot of the people in our church, like you became a follower of Jesus and you're like, okay, well, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to share my faith with my husband or I'm going to share my faith with my sibling or I'm going to share my faith with a parent. And all of a sudden they're going to be blown away and like, you know, all of a sudden it's going to be better. And like instead, you know, some of you, you probably like that same sibling that you shared your faith with now like a dozen times, like you looked on Facebook this morning and you saw that same sibling made the exact same mistake uh, that he's been making his entire life since he was a teenager. And not only that, but he like posted it on Facebook for like everybody to know that he's making that exact same mistake over and over again. It's easy for you to look at that and just be like, what the heck is going on here? Should I just give up? Should I just tap out? Should I just give in? Uh, Because... Like, it doesn't seem like anything's happening. Just to be transparent with you, I feel this. Like, I felt this in particular this summer. Um, I just want you to know, like, how I've been, like, applying this in my own life. It's like, man, things in our neighborhood are, like, crazy right now. And it's, like, so weird because it's, like, on one hand in our neighborhood, you have, like, crazy amounts of violence. 
And I understand, like, that, that's part of living in a city, but when there's, like, drive-bys where you take your kids to the park, and when there's murders, like, on other pastors' blocks, and it's just like, can we walk places anymore? What exactly does this look like for us to do life as a young family? You have kind of that going on. Uh, but then at the same time, it's like the housing prices in the neighborhood have skyrocketed as well. Like, I don't get that. I don't, like, know how exactly those two things work with one another. Some of you, like, understand the real estate market better than me, but I would think, like, oh, that would make, like, housing prices more affordable. And it's not about housing prices. It's, like, about we have a ton of really good people in the life of our church that, like, want to own homes in the heart of the city, and they just can't afford to. Like, they're, they're willing to take on the violence. They're willing to take on the challenges. They're willing to put down roots. And they just, like, can't afford to do it. And then, like, the people who are buying homes, this is a little bit of a stereotype. But on the whole, at least what I'm seeing on my blog, the people who can't afford, like, the half-million-plus-dollar homes, like, aren't really moving to the city to, like, work for the welfare of the city, for the glory of Jesus. Like, no, they're, like, seeing this as a good real estate investment, and they're gone every weekend because they can also afford to have a home in the mountains. And it's like, how do we share our faith with these people? It's like, I'm not going to process all my issues from stage, but it's like, I'm feeling this. And I'm working through this, and I look at these things, and I'm like, what is going on? Like, are we winning? Are we losing? It doesn't seem like we're gaining like a whole lot of ground. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of, like, I said a couple weeks ago that I never planted anything in my life. I thought this week, I actually have. My wife and I, we planted a tree in front of our house, and like, for the first three years of having that tree in front of our house, we had like daily debates as to whether or not that thing was dead. There was like nothing going on with it. Like, we're just like, there's nothing. There'd be like one little bud, and then all of a sudden it would like rain. It was gone. And we were like, oh my gosh. And we we're despairing. But like, it's amazing. Like, now, four years later, it's this like beautiful, flourishing tree. We just didn't see what was going on beneath the surface. And it's like, what's such good news about what Jesus says in the midst of you despairing and feeling like you should tap out and you should quit and you should give in because it's been like six months that you've been at this thing, or it's been a year since you've been at this thing, or it's been 15 years since you've been at this thing. For you who has the propensity to despair, for you who wants to give up on that family member, for you who wants to give up on what God can do in your workplace, for you who wants to give up on what God can do in the city, for me who wants to give up, because it's like, are we winning or are we losing? Jesus speaks, and when he speaks, he recalibrates our hearts to what is good and right and true. And he says, the kingdom comes like a sea. Like, don't despair. Like, that's exactly the way this thing grows. It is the ultimate underdog story. And what happens with your family member and what happens in that workplace are often years of blood, sweat, tears that produce a fruit that is miraculous and more beautiful than you could ever ever imagine. But you have to be in it for the long haul. You have to think long and you have to think hard because the kingdom comes like a sea. It doesn't mean that we lower our expectations. It does not mean we shrink our vision of what God can do in our city and in our world. We expand them. But we have realistic expectations. Maybe not realistic expectations, but we have a biblical vision of the way that miraculous work comes. And it's not like, a lot of times, the most epic box office release ever. It's more like, man, should we quit? No, like the kingdom is powerful to seed. We're going to keep being faithful and keep being committed and keep just pouring out our lives for its advancement. All right. Third and finally, Jesus says the kingdom's fruit is enjoyed globally. The kingdom's fruit is enjoyed globally. Now look at the next part of what Jesus says here in verse 32. Yet... But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches, which, again, like Jesus is saying, again, don't lower your expectations. 
it's a really beautiful analogy saying like, no, like this thing, it grows and it's, it, it advances. Uh, but then he gives the purpose. So like it grows. So he sows this tiny little seed. It grows up to be astoundingly beautiful and miraculously big. And then he gives the purpose. Like, well, why does it do that? And look, he says, so that. Like, so that. Whenever you see that in the Bible, that's sort of connoting purpose. Here's why this happens. So that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. That's the reason why. That's what, the reason why the kingdom produces this great fruitfulness. So that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now, I'll be totally transparent with you. Before I study this in any sort of detail, I looked at this, and I was like, Jesus, that's a pretty clever analogy. It's cute. It makes me feel good. I love thinking about, like, birds, like, being under the shade. Like, everybody must have been in the room like, oh, like, that's really sweet. Uh, but that's where my knowledge of the Old Testament was lacking, and I'm thank, thanking God that I studied further. And this is where it's like, I really wish a lot of you in this room, like, had grown up in a Jewish context and had sort of an exhaustive knowledge of the Old Testament because we're like, oh, like, Jesus, that's so sweet. But somebody who knew the Old Testament, like the people that were in the room listening to Jesus teach this, they would have been like, oh, snap. Like, Jesus just dropped the mic and he walked off because, like, nobody says that. Now, why is that? Like, why is this so significant? Well, because Jesus is picking up on language of the Old Testament that was used regularly to describe the inclusion of all nations underneath the advancing and multiplying kingdom of God that is ruled by the Messianic king. To kind of give you an example of this, Ezekiel talks about this actually a number of times. Um, Ezekiel writes, On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. You know, it's like, this is the exact same language. Jesus is being very personal in what he's saying. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And what Jesus is proclaiming is that he is that messianic king. He is making a yet another, uh, yet not another, uh, so, yet so, how do I want to say this? I'll just say it directly. He is making a very blatant claim to be God. And not only that, but to be the Messiah to whom all the nations will bow their knee because of his supreme worth and his supreme value. The fruit of the kingdom is meant to be enjoyed globally, and this is a vision that was started all the way back in the Old Testament. Now, I want you to think about what it must have been like to be in the room and hear Jesus say this. Think about that for a second. I would be like so put off by him saying that. Be like, man, like I know you have like a little bit of influence. I know you're getting like a little bit of a platform, but like let's just like temper our expectations a little bit, Jesus. Okay? Like you have a little bit of a following in Capernaum, this kind of small Middle Eastern town. You're telling me you are going to be worshipped and obeyed to the ends of the earth. Like, settle down, Jesus. Settle down. And here's what's really interesting. Like, a lot of times we say how much easier, and I just kind of said this, like, a lot of times it's like, it would be so much easier if you had been in the room originally and listened to Jesus talk, and you'd be able to understand because you would be in his context. But I think what Jesus claims here is actually much easier for you to understand if you're sitting in the room right now than if you had lived 2,000 years ago, because you actually are 2,000 years removed from this, where it's just like, it's kind of like no matter what you believe about God, what Jesus claims here, what he claims is going to happen across the globe, like, actually does happen. It's just kind of cold, hard data. In fact, on Twitter this week, I saw, can we pull up this map here? Um, 
I saw this map. This was done by the Pew Research Center, uh, and they were talking about kind of the predominant faith or belief system in uh, every country in the world. Everything in red is Christianity. And I know, like, you know, people might push back and be like, well, wait a second, like, not everybody who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. I get that. But still, like, think about how astounding it is that the presence of this, like, like marginalized Middle Eastern teacher in the first century has grown to have that sort of global influence. Or you might even push back and be like, what about the green parts? Well, the green parts are the, pre- the, the predominance of Islam, which is interesting. Like, that's not only where Christianity grew and flourished and multiplied from, but like, that's the most dangerous part of the world to be a Christian right now. Again, I'm not trying to be, like, intolerant in this, but it's kind of cold hard. I mean, just Google the news. Like, if you're a Christian in that part of the the world, like, you're not just going to die. Like, you're going to die in the least humane way possible. Like, you would think, like, I mean, there's never really a humane way to murder somebody, but, like, they are murdering Christians and stomping out the church in, like, the least humane way possible. You might even put to, like, you see the gray part right there? That's China. Like, the reason that's gray, which means kind of, like, unaffiliated, is because it's ruled by the Communist Party that has sort of at its root, like, you can't proclaim to be a Christian. And yet here's what's interesting about the Pew Research Forum in terms of what they found about this. They said, um, the Pew researchers believe Christianity has flourished despite a policy forbidding Christianity among Communist Party members. This is talking about China. It says, researchers estimate the Christian community in China includes 5% of the population. You're like, oh, 5%, that's not many. That's 67 million people. That's like a quarter of the United States population. It's a little bit less than that. Like, that should astound you. You look at Sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, like, Sub-Saharan Africa, Christianity has exploded. You take Nigeria, there are more Protestants. Not just Christians, Protestant Christians in Nigeria than there are in Germany. Germany is where the Protestant Reformation began, and there are more Protestants in Nigeria than there. Like, that should just sort of astound you. Oh my gosh, like, it is amazing how the fame of Jesus has spread across the face of the globe. Or maybe, let me, let me just kind of say this, like, maybe you're the type of person who's like, oh, well, you know, like, kind of cold, hard data isn't particularly interesting to me, which is, that's totally fine. I get you. So let me, uh, let me, let me just kind of give you another example. Um, you know, in my family, there's, there's three of us. Um, well, there's, in Denver, you're, also, you're supposed to count your dogs. So there's five of us. Um, there's me, my wife, and Hannah, and then we have our two dogs that we treat like humans because that's what you do uh, in Denver. Uh, now, can we bring up that other map? That's really great. Now, um, but for the sake of this illustration, let's just talk about the three of us. Let's talk about myself, my wife, and, uh, and talk about Hannah. There's three of us. And here's what's really interesting to me is um, when you look at even my family, like the supremacy of Jesus amongst the nations is like so, so evident. Um, my family, I feel like we have kind of the least cool story of the entirety of my family. But my family, um, my dad's side uh, immigrated from Germany. Um, that's right over there. Um, my mom's side uh, immigrated from Ireland. Uh, the southern coast of Cork. They were kind of like culturally Catholic from what I've heard and been told. Um, but it's interesting, they moved to Michigan, which is up there, and then they moved ultimately down to uh, Virginia, which is right there. And there was kind of like this cultural Catholicism uh, in my family. Um, but really, like, I was one of the first people, like multiple generations removed from all of that, to like really kind of believe the, the kind of the, the orthodox evangelical uh, gospel. Uh, again, that's kind of my story. Uh, Megan's family immigrated up from Peru 
to Miami. Her mom, who's here, hello Carmen, um, immigrated um, from Peru to Florida when she was 18. Uh, from her own admission, was kind of culturally Catholic as well. Uh, she met uh, Megan's dad from Missouri. He came down from there. They met in Miami. They moved up to South Carolina. At South Carolina, Megan's mom became a Christian, which ultimately led to Megan being raised in a Christian home as well. Then you have my daughter. We adopted, and so our daughter is from Taiwan. Taiwan is this tiny little island right around here. If you didn't learn anything, you at least know where Taiwan is right now. It's right there, uh, so you're welcome. But it's interesting. It's like her story doesn't just start in Taiwan. She was at a home uh, that was started by a man named Ted. Now, Ted is one of my biggest heroes ever. Ted moved there. Uh, Ultimately, it's a crazy story. A man named Hudson Taylor moved from the United States to China in the 1800s to start the Chinese Inland Mission. And this woman who was influenced by the Chinese Inland Mission, she was one of the first people to help get it off the ground, uh, kind of towards the end of Hudson Taylor's life, moved back to Missouri to kind of like die, basically, to be taken care of in the hospital. She challenges Ted on her deathbed to go to the people of China or to the people of Taiwan to advance the gospel and to plant churches. And so Ted moves there. He moves to Taiwan, and he starts a home for children as well as he starts churches as well. That's where my daughter was raised for the first few months of her life until we were able to adopt her and to bring her back home to Denver, which hopefully you know is right around here. Now, here's the really interesting thing is we live in Denver. Okay, and the reason we live in Denver is no accident whatsoever. We moved here to start a church. But a lot of times, like, a lot of you think, like, oh, yeah, churches just kind of appear out of nowhere. They're just like, oh, yeah, like, they just, boop, like, churches. No, like, churches start churches, right? There was a time when there was no church, and then churches get started, and we were sent out from Denver, which is right here, from North Carolina. Uh, There was a church called The Summit also in North Carolina. That church called The Summit was started by another church in North Carolina. It was started by another church in North Carolina. They actually trace its lineage all the way back to a guy who started the church from Boston. We're kind of running out of a room here, uh, as you can see. He started the church from Boston out of the influence of a guy named George Whitfield. George Whitfield moved to Boston to help start new churches from England. England is right here, and that's kind of London in that particular area. Those lineage of churches can trace their legacy all the way back to a guy named St. Augustine who moved to England to plant churches around the 6th century or so. He moved from Rome, which is right in here, and Rome should sound familiar because churches were started there all the way back in the first century in the Bible uh, by the Apostle Paul and his followers. And really what's so crazy about all of this is it can trace its lineage right back to the Middle East, right in kind of this region right here, revealing that the entirety of the nations, even in my little story of my little nuclear family in our little new church, puts on display the good news of the supremacy of Jesus amongst the nations. And what I would challenge you in the midst of all of this is not to be like, oh, well, that's like really interesting. Thanks for sharing. Like, that's not the point. The supremacy of Jesus amongst the nations points to the supremacy of Jesus as king. It points to his supreme value and worth that he alone is the one who unites freely by grace and love and truth and through faith. That sort of allegiance and that sort of obedience and that sort of worship. And it should push you as a consequence to deeply examine yourself because what's being revealed in the midst of all of this is you don't only universally long for a kingdom, more importantly at the foundation of it, you and I, we universally long for a king. And Jesus is claiming in this scene and history as a whole points to that he is that man and he is worthy of that role 
And you are meant to bend your knee in submission and delightful obedience. And so I would challenge you as a consequence of everything that Jesus has claimed up to this point to deeply examine your own life and your own heart and who is functionally Lord and King, who is the final decision maker, who is the hope for peace in your life, who is the hope for peace in your neighborhood, who is the hope for there to be peace in your marriage that you might feel like is falling apart, who is that? And if it is anyone or anything else than the person and work of Jesus, I would repent and turn away. I would turn and believe Jesus, and I would treasure him for the supreme king that he is. Think about that. Like, really think about that. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. I'm going to give you the opportunity to think about this, and we'll kind of give some next steps in terms of how to respond in reaction. God, we thank you so much for who you are, and we thank you that you are the supreme king who's extended your fame to the nations. And yes, we even look at a map like that and like, we don't want to be naive. We don't want to be like, oh, well, the work is done now. Like, we know that there are many who have not heard, and not only not heard of the truth, but like are unengaged in the midst of hearing the truth as well. So we aren't naive about the mission task. But at the same time, we delight in response to say, like, this is not some small little cult that has remained in the Middle East for a couple thousand years. No, this is the predominant faith system that is freely believed across the face of the globe. And it points to the beauty and the wonder and the treasure of who you are. But I pray for the men and women in this room that we would not leave it at that and just be intrigued by this cultural observation, but we would let it deeply reflect and impose upon our lives where someone or something does does function as king. And as we examine our lives, if anyone or anything else is the final authority and we do follow and worship as Lord, that we would repent and we would believe and we would follow. We ask these things in the name of King Jesus. Amen.